Hello, you're listening to the podcast, Every Tongue Got to Confess. It's being brought to you by the Zora Festival 2017 and Rollins College. And in this podcast, we look at the issues and dilemmas facing the 21st century. I'm Robert Castanello, an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida, and I will be your host for this episode of the Every Tongue Got to Confess podcast. I sat down with Charles Blow, a New York Times columnist, who will be speaking at the 2017 Zora Festival. We spoke about some of the issues related to the theme of this year's conference. The theme is Communities Conference, Civic Conversations Concerning 21st century American life in communities of color. Let's listen to what he had to say. If we could just start out, would you mind um, introducing yourself to our subscribers? Hi, my name is Charles Blood, Monopoly columnist at the New York Times. And um, one of the things we're, we're doing with this uh, podcast is it in conjunction with the uh, Zora Festival and the Communities of Color Conference. And I was wondering if um, you, you mind addressing a few of the, um, of the themes of the conference and some of the things we're trying to, to get at with, the, uh, with this podcast project. So, um, you know, one of the questions I have is, is what do you believe communities of color can do to be proactive facing problems linked to policing, education, and employment? Well, so that's, those are like very different uh, areas. Um, the, the first, I mean, it's, I guess, well, but they're also overlapping um, and, and understanding the interconnectedness uh, the, the intersectionality of all of these things is really important and also understanding the kind of historical dimensions of, of, of those phenomena are important to, uh, as well. I mean, one thing that's, you know, to, to be completely historic about it is to understand that, um, you know, the police are not part of, uh, are not a constitutional part of our country. There's no police force in the Constitution. Right. We decided as a society that we were going to have these, uh, these professional uh, 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 forces, uh, and it was largely grew out of a, a, a desire to protect property. That's why in the South they kind of come out of um, the slave patrols, and in the North they come out of uh, the, the idea that you know, rich people wanted to protect their interests. And if you follow that thread of kind of how these uh, these forces originate, it is still to uh, a disturbing degree about the protecting, controlling of properties and bodies, uh, rather than what we want it to be. I think, at least in uh, the way we talk about it, to be about service. Um, and if you if you understand it as a protection of property and therefore controlling of bodies in order to control that property, then you start to understand how detrimental, how things can go horribly wrong when you introduce individual biases into a system that is already 
problematic from the beginning. And, and layer on top of that the idea that the courts have created a situation where, uh, where um, law of, uh, surrounding policing is almost completely different from law surrounding any uh, thing else, right? So if you, you know, if, if, if you shoot someone and you're a police officer, that, uh, the court has basically said it's not only what you did, it is how you felt when you did what you did. And in particular, it is about the degree of fear, which is a fungible commodity in a society, particularly in a diverse society. Uh, uh, and that fear can be a defense. So if you if, you know it's so completely different than if you were you were in some sort of workplace situation and you sued your employer because you did not have you know you you got fired or you didn't get a, a, a raise and everybody else got a raise because all the court in that case wants to know is were all of you doing the same things were you doing it well or poorly or whatever the case and did one person get treated differently than someone else that is not the way that 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 these particular cases are decided, which means that it, it makes it almost impossible to gain convictions. And so what you see is a system, a court, a, a kind of juris, a system of jurisprudence that is almost com, uh, set up not to grant uh, justice in these particular kinds of cases. And if that is the case, then you have to you know, take one step forward and say, what do I do then to deal with the historical structures that have created these forces, the, 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 the structures of jurisprudence that enforce and, and kind of shield these structures and allow for abuses of people like me, that allow for individual prejudices to, to kind of creep into this system uh, and exploit it? How do I deal with that? And the way you deal with that you know, this is a big one of my hobby horses. Is you have to start to deal with the judges themselves, right? That you have to start to, you know, um, uh, voting in all sorts of <laughs> uh, judicial elections, all the way up to Supreme Court. Which, of course, you don't vote for the Supreme Court, but you do vote for presidents who place people on the court, and the and the court. Is you know the Supreme Court in particular is the place where all the precedents are set about how police are supposed to interact with individual citizens because there is you know there is there's nothing explicitly written in the Constitution about it and so the court keeps laying out how their vision of how they believe policing should work and a lot of that has led to a situation where it allows for abuse. And until we check that system, we will always have these abuses, and you will almost never get to a point where you'll have any conviction of an officer for doing doing something horrendous because they can always say that I was afraid. Sure, and you mentioned the intersectionality. So I guess you know if, if you look at the the frame you, you pose here with the courts. I would guess there'd, there'd be an overlap in education and employment as well as far as the court sort of uh, imposing a, a, a view on people who come before it and to address, um, address societal ills. Well, well I mean, 
employment and, and education is slightly different. So, you know, if you take the, the education issue, right, so uh, uh, because the way we have uh, designed our education, education is also not part of the Constitution, by the way, but uh, the way we have designed our educational systems in America, we have basically left it up to local funding. And so if you look across the entire country, you can see, you know, we, that we spend a lot of money, we don't get the best results. But the reason that is is because we have, you know, tremendous peaks in the valleys, right? So if you go to some schools in, say, Texas, and they're building $50 million football stadiums, and then you go, you know, not, you know, 100 miles away from that school, and there are poor schools that can't even afford all the books that they need. And so you have this incredible variation in how schooling uh, is funded, and, um, and that, that leads to all sorts of issues, right? So you have warehousing, of, I mean, and, and that overlaps with race and, and ethnicity and, and geography in all sorts of ways. Uh, and that, that funding issue becomes a kind of uh, cyclical problem because you can't, uh, you know, uh, what our, the research has shown us is you, uh, the poor schools have a really hard time keeping, attracting and keeping the best teachers. The best teachers want to go where the most money is because it is a comfortable environment. Uh, they, are, they feel supported. Teaching is a very hard job. You really want to feel supported. You don't want to have to bring in extra supplies for kids who show up hungry or without pencils, without books. And so it becomes this kind of cyclical thing that feeds on itself. And so we end up with a, a system of a very uneven system of education in our public side, and then on the uh, on the private side, and, and particularly as you go into on, uh, to the college level, you get even more disparities, right? So you have people who can afford to you know do the five thousand dollars worth of ACT or SAT tutoring, and of course they get. Uh, the better scores, and of course, then they get the better placement in the best schools. And then we look around and we say, well, why are we not producing, you know, a, a you know, tremendous uh, diversity of students who can do this? It's not because the students are just, just as bright. It's just that who can afford the five thousand dollars, right? That that helps you to prep for the test. You know, if your uh, parents are working a job that does not play, pay a living wage, this is linking in the, the economic portion of it, it's very hard for that parent then to do the extra things, the piano lessons, the, the trips to the museum on the weekend. It becomes a very difficult thing to do the enrichment, the soft skills that allow those children to really blossom into the best kind of, of high school students who, who colleges look at and say, you are the perfect fit for us. And so all of that kind of you know, it, it's really, it's almost impossible to separate, you know, that kind of economic issue from the educational issue. All of that also uh, uh, is tied to mass incarceration in our judicial system. It is a really tangled web. And so, it, you know, when people start trying to figure out how to, 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 to uh, find solutions to these problems, you know, it, it's almost hard to find a beginning point. You almost have to just kind of jump in and say, I, can, I know that I can help on this part of this issue because everything is so tangled. It's like a, you know, a ball of yarn on the floor. You don't know where it starts or, or ends. You just have to 
you know, jump in and try to fix, start trying to untangle wherever you are. Sure. Now, if we can move uh, to another topic of the media, what do you think the role is of the media in either helping or hindering dialogues on race? You know, I, I actually believe that, that you know, um, we talk a tremendous amount about race. Uh, it's just that, you know, the way what, what we think of when we think of discussions about race is that it is a discussion among, about the aggrieved or, or among the aggrieved and that everybody else is listening rather than, as Tony Morrison says, that, you know, if, if I am raced, then you are raced, that you, that you are part of this. In fact, you are the progenitor of this. I mean, there's, this, the racial conversation cannot be me talking. It's you talking too. It, it is you taking responsibility too. It is, you know, that is the part where I think we, we kind of miss it because we, you know, there's a tremendous amount written about race. There's a tremendous amount discussed about race on television. There's a tremendous amount uh, discussed about race, you know, in our personal lives, over the, you know, at work, uh, in our social environments. What we don't have as much of, however, is, you know, is a, you know, a, a kind of free-flowing discussion in which everybody realizes that they have a role to play in it, rather than the the responsibility of education being on the oppressed. Sure. And so, I mean, you know, obviously the, the media plays an important role in creating um, narratives about identity and things, but what do you think community of, communities of color can do to create different narratives about, um, about identity in the country? So I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure that that is the way that I come at the question. I mean, I, that I come at the issue about is, is the creation of narratives. I mean, I strongly believe that, that you know, the time is a precious commodity and that I only have so much of it and it is exhaustible. And therefore, I don't spend time thinking about, worrying about, trying to create any sort of narrative whatsoever, but rather that I spend all of my time and energy doing my work, loving my family, honoring my community. And in that, I become, you know, a kind of a beacon and a light to them. That, that is what is important to me. Try, I, just, you know, I really chafe at this idea that I have to educate someone. I just, I, I refuse to do it. If you have a defect, you know, if, you, if your defect is, prejudice or racism or whatever, I, ref I won't engage that because the time that is the precious commodity to me, I can choose how to use it. If you are going home and sleeping well and loving your family and I'm up worried about how I'm going to teach you how to, how to treat me, I'm wasting my time. If I've already given you the, the you know, the, part of me that is that has to feel some pressures from stress about race. I am not also going to give you my time and energy. I simply won't do it. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Every Tongue Got to Confess podcast. Be sure to find the rest of the episodes by searching for us online and subscribing to us on iTunes. Thank you.